Hello, dear listener. Thanks for tuning into A Minder. This is your host, Nyla. I hope you're feeling sharp and alert today as I've got 19 papers for you on epidemiological and risk factor research that was published in November 2021. We'll plunge into all sorts of topics right after this quick introduction. Welcome to A Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Alright, so let's get started. But before we do, in case you haven't listened to our podcast before, just my usual disclaimer that what I'm doing here is summarizing papers based on their abstracts. If you'd like to take a deep dive on anything that I go through today, you can easily do so by finding the attached bibliography, and I'll make it easy by giving you all of the information you need to follow up on the papers. With that, let's get started. So I have organized today's papers into four categories. They're a little um, artificial, let's say. So my first one is seven papers on epidemiological studies and environmental factors. Then we have four papers on vaccines and medication use. Then we'll take a break before getting into sort of psychomotor papers and metabolic comorbidities. With that, paper number one will start us off easy. It's a paper on the incidence of dementia, specifically within the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil. So this work is unsurprisingly coming from Sao Paulo University and the Federal University of Santa Catarina by first author Lopez and last author Litva. And the title of paper one is Incidence of Dementia in a Population Cohort of Older People from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And uh, it was published in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. To estimate the incidence of dementia in Sao Paulo, the authors examined a representative cluster sample of nearly 1,400 individuals aged 60 years old and over, and from three different socioeconomic levels. In the initial screening, participants were evaluated on cognitive and functional tests, and diagnosis of dementia and dementia subtypes was based on the DSM-IV criteria. Out of their initial sample, 489 participants completed the evaluation, 42 of which were diagnosed with dementia. This means that there was an incidence rate of 11.2 per 1,000 person years for dementia and of 8.9 for Alzheimer's disease specifically. The authors report a trend to greater AD risk, AD being Alzheimer's, so greater Alzheimer's risk among women compared to men, and the risk of dementia more generally was increased by older age, the presence of diabetes, and the presence of amnestic mild cognitive impairment. The age-specific rates identified in this study were higher than those in other regions of the world, and the authors proposed that this might be due to cardiovascular comorbidity. And you'll hear a bit about that later on in the episode. Paper 2 is focused on the prevalence of dementia, this time amongst veterans in the U.S. If you're like me and a little confused about incidence versus prevalence, let me give you a quick refresher. Incidence is the rate of new cases of a disease in a specific population, whereas prevalence is the number of cases at a particular time point or over a time period. Okay, so onwards to paper two, titled Prevalence of Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias Among Veterans Experiencing Housing Insecurity. 
The first author is Jutkowitz. The last author is Rudolf. This is coming from the Providence VA Medical Center in Rhode Island and the Brown University School of Public Health and was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. The authors wanted to know the prevalence of AD and related dementias amongst veterans that experienced homelessness, were at risk of homelessness, or were stably housed. They don't mention the sample size in the abstract, but they assessed the use of acute care, such as emergency department visits and hospitalizations, and the use of long-term care, so either community-based or nursing homes, amongst veterans who were diagnosed with AD or a related dementia, and they looked at whether this access to care was in any way related to housing status. They report that the prevalence of AD and related dementias was 3.7% for homeless veterans, 13.5% for those who were at risk of homelessness, and 3% for those who were stably housed. Compared to stably housed veterans, those who were facing housing insecurity made more use of acute care and were more likely to have an admission to a nursing home. The veterans who were at risk of homelessness also were more likely to use U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs paid home and community-based care than stably housed veterans, but this wasn't the case for homeless veterans. There's definitely something to dig into here regarding how an AD diagnosis and housing insecurity affect one another in this population. Let's move into another topic, namely subjective cognitive decline. And this is something I covered a couple papers on in last month's episode as well. Self-reported or subjective cognitive decline is increasingly recognized as a potential first symptom of AD, and identifying individuals who complain of cognitive impairment early could help prevent or perhaps at least alter disease progression. So paper three is Risk Factors for Subjective Cognitive Decline, the Cable Study. There are two first authors, namely Wen and Hu, and last author Yu, and this is coming from Qingdao University and Fudan University in China. And lastly, it was published in Translational Psychiatry. This study followed nearly 1,200 participants without objective cognitive impairment, so that is based on clinical assessments, to identify risk factors linked to subjective cognitive decline. 42% of the participants in the study complained of subjective cognitive decline, and the authors identified eight factors that contributed to this. The main ones were older age, thyroid diseases, minimal anxiety symptoms, and daytime dysfunction, but female sex, anemia, lack of physical exercise, and living alone also increased the risk. The authors also found that the more risk factors someone had, the more the prevalence of subjective cognitive decline became. These findings can hopefully serve as clues as to what drives subjective cognitive decline and how we may be able to intervene at this prodromal stage. And if you want to learn more about subjective cognitive decline in terms of diagnosing Alzheimer's, you can check out Sarah's cognitive assessment episode. I just mentioned living alone as a potential risk factor in the last paper, which links well to this next one. Paper 4 is entitled Association Between Marital Status and Cognitive Impairment Based on a Cross-Sectional Study in China. The first author is Chen, the last author is Ji. This is primarily from the Capital Medical University and the Tianjin Huanhu Hospital and was published in International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. The author set out to investigate whether marital status is in any way related to cognitive impairment and to see whether it differentially influences dementia risk in men versus women. 
They randomly selected survey data from 13 provinces and municipalities across China, totaling over 19,000 participants aged 65 years or older. These participants were interviewed regarding their sociodemographic characteristics and also completed neuropsychological testing. From their study sample, the authors found that around 77% were married, 1.6% were single, and 21% were divorced, separated, or widowed. Compared to married individuals, the odds ratios of dementia were higher in those who were single, namely at 2.13, and in people who were divorced, separated, or widowed, so either at 1.75 for those under 55 years of age, or an odds ratio of 1.16 over the age of 55. Lastly, there was some evidence that men were more affected by this marriage disruption than women, in terms of dementia risk at least. Perhaps these results speak towards the need for social contact, which has been linked to cognitive function, but it's hard to draw specific conclusions from an epidemiological study. Maybe another benefit of being married is having a regular conversation partner. This could be particularly beneficial if you speak multiple languages, because bilingualism is thought to be protective against dementia. That is, it has been linked to a delay in cognitive decline, uh, likely through increasing cognitive reserve. Let's learn more with paper 5, which was published in Human Brain Mapping by first author Sala and last author Perani. This is coming from a couple universities and hospitals in Milan, Italy, and the title is Lifelong Bilingualism and Mechanisms of Neuroprotection in Alzheimer Dementia. The authors wanted to see how lifelong bilingualism is manifested underneath the hood by looking at brain metabolism and connectivity in AD patients. 56 monolinguals and 42 bilinguals with Alzheimer's dementia were recruited to the study, and they underwent 18F fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography, so that is PET imaging. If that meant nothing to you, this allows the authors to measure glucose uptake in the brain. They also administered a language background questionnaire to measure the level of language use for conversation and reading, and considered age, years of education, and the mini mental state exam scores as covariates in their analysis. The authors report that brain hypometabolism was worse in bilingual versus monolingual patients, with the severity increasing with a degree of second language use. So before you go thinking this means that bilingualism is bad for the brain, consider that these patients have greater pathology, but they have an equal or same clinical manifestation of dementia. So this actually suggests that bilingualism might increase cognitive reserve or it would decrease the amount of cognitive impairment you see for the same amount of pathology. In terms of metabolic connectivity between brain regions, they found that this was higher in bilingual than monolingual patients, specifically for the executive, language, and anterior default mode networks. All of the observed effects were most pronounced in the left cerebral hemisphere. Overall, these results suggest that lifelong bilingualism leads to compensatory mechanisms in the brain that delay cognitive decline even in the presence of pathology. The authors stress the importance of bilingual education and social programs, and I do have to say that as a resident of Montreal, it's pretty neat living in a bilingual environment. Speaking of environment, let's take a look at a common environmental risk factor for the next two papers, namely air pollution. 
You will hear me say PM 2.5 a lot for these papers. This refers to fine particulate matter that is 2.5 microns or smaller and has been linked to risk of Alzheimer's among other health conditions. Paper 6 was published in Nature Communications by two first authors, namely Shi and Steenland, and last author Schwartz. It's coming from Emory University in Atlanta and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health in Boston. And the title of Paper 6 is A National Cohort Study 2000-2018 of Long-Term Air Pollution Exposure and Incident Dementia in Older Adults in the United States. The others looked at the association between different air pollutants and the incidence of dementia and AD by constructing two national U.S. population-based cohorts of those aged 65 years and older. And again, this was between 2000 and 2018. Specifically, they used data from the Medicare Chronic Conditions Warehouse and high-resolution air pollution data sets. The authors identified around 2 million incident dementia cases and 0.8 million incident AD cases and reported the corresponding hazard ratios for 5-year average exposure to PM2.5, nitrogen dioxide, and warm season ozone. Rather than listing all of these uh, hazard ratios here, I'll refer you to the paper, but I'll let you know that they conclude that both exposure to PM2.5 and to nitrogen dioxide were associated with higher risk of dementia and AD. Paper 7 is also on air pollution. The title is Impact of Air Pollution Exposure on the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease in China, a Community-Based Cohort Study, by first author He and last author Chen, Published in Environmental Research and coming out of the Zhejiang Provincial Center for Disease Control and Prevention in China and the um, University of Wolverhampton in the UK. The authors of this paper asked a similar question to those of the last one, but they were also curious whether fish consumption can play a protective role in mitigating the risk of air pollution. That might seem a bit random, but the Mediterranean diet, which includes a lot of fish, is often reported as potentially neuroprotective in AD. This study included over 6,000 participants aged 60 years and older in China, and the authors examined the association between AD and multiple air pollutants, that is, PM2.5, PM10, carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and ozone. So specifically, they've divided their participants into low, middle, or high exposure to air pollutants, and also into high or low fish consumption. From their cohort, a total of 986 were diagnosed with AD in the study period, and the authors found that this was significantly associated with middle or higher exposure to PM2.5. There was also increased risk observed with PM10 and carbon monoxide, but not with nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, or ozone. While there were no interaction effects between air pollutants and fish consumption, participants with low fish consumption had higher odd ratios in the PM2.5 exposure than those with high fish consumption. These findings suggest that certain air pollutants do increase the risk of AD and that there could be a potentially mitigating effect of eating fish. That brings us into our next section, which is on various medication use as well as the use of a vaccine. I'll start out with that one. So we have been hearing a lot about vaccines in the last year. This paper is not on COVID vaccines, though. It's rather on vaccination against herpes virus and herpes zoster, or shingles, as these may increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So paper 8 was published in In Vivo. 
It's a two-author paper, first author Lehrer and last author Reinstein. It's coming from the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Severn Health Solutions. And the title is Herpes Zoster Vaccination Reduces Risk of Dementia. So that's also the summary. But I'll give you a bit more. In this study, the authors tested the relationship between a herpes zoster vaccination and cognitive impairment using data from Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. So they had 275 subjects in their study, and they had the vaccination status of these participants, but they also had data regarding whether disorientation or memory loss was negatively impacting their social activities. This was, in other words, their measure for cognitive impairment. The authors report that 62% of vaccinated subjects and 47% of unvaccinated subjects never had social activities hampered by disorientation or memory loss. When they conducted a multivariate linear regression, accounting for sex and education level, they found that being vaccinated for herpes zoster reduced the risk of cognitive impairment, that is, of having social activities hampered by disorientation and memory loss. This finding is consistent with herpes infection being a risk factor for AD and highlights the importance of vaccinating against it. Paper 9 is on the use of general anesthesia, for example, in surgeries. Could this increase the risk of AD and dementia? Let's see with this study from first author Zoon and last author Kim. This is at Hallam University in Korea, was published in the Journal of Personalized Medicine, and the title is Longitudinal Study of the Association Between General Anesthesia and Increased Risk of Developing Dementia. The authors analyzed data from a representative cohort sample of the Korean National Health Insurance Service. This included 3,100 patients who had undergone general anesthesia and were over the age of 55, and 12,400 comparison subjects who had not received anesthesia. The study follow-up period was nine years, at the conclusion of which the authors found that the overall incidence of both AD and vascular dementia was higher in the group that had received anesthesia, particularly in women and individuals who had other comorbidities. This suggests that care should be taken when administering anesthesia, although I encourage you to check out the paper to see whether they discuss potential comorbidities or other variables that may play into this association. Next, let's take a look at research coming out of the University of Toronto on the use of overactive bladder drugs and the potential relationship to dementia. This was published by first author Mada and last author Nam. The title is Receipt of Overactive Bladder Drugs and Incident Dementia, a Population-Based Case Control Study. And paper number 10 was published in European Urology Focus. We're looking specifically at two types of overactive bladder drugs here. The first is anti-muscarinic drugs, which are a subclass of anticholinergic drugs, and the second is a beta-3 agonist called Myrabegron. This study included nearly 11,400 patients over the age of 65 who had received a diagnosis of dementia and nearly 29,900 age and sex-matched controls without dementia. The authors looked at the use of overactive bladder drugs in the 6 to 12 months before receiving a dementia diagnosis or study onset and adjusted for demographic and health-related characteristics that could be confounders. They found that patients who had received the anti-muscarinic drugs solifenacin or darifenacin had increased odds of incident dementia compared to those who had received the beta-3 agonist mirabegron. They report on a few other specific drugs that you can check out in the paper. 
But the overall conclusion is that the use of anticholinergic drugs to treat overactive bladder may increase the risk of dementia. Let's turn to other drug use for paper number 11, which is entitled Benzodiazepine and Z-Drug Use and the Risk of Developing Dementia. This is by first author Torres Bondia and last author Pignol Ripoll. It's from Arnau de Villanova University Hospital in Spain, and it was published in the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology. Benzodiazepines and Z-drugs are commonly prescribed to treat anxiety and insomnia, especially in older adults, but little is known about whether their long-term use could have negative effects on cognition. To explore this question, the authors conducted a community-based retrospective cohort study, which included over 83,000 medication users and over 84,600 non-users. The participants were all over the age of 45, and the authors considered a five-year lag window and potentially confounding psychiatric problems in their analysis. Overall, the use of benzodiazepines and Z-drugs did not increase the risk of dementia, though a closer look revealed that short half-life drugs did increase the risk at high doses, specifically over 90 defined daily dose units, and particularly in female patients. More research is needed, but this suggests that caution should be taken when prescribing higher doses of these medications, and perhaps that longer-acting drugs should be favored. We are over halfway through our episode. Let's take a break here. You'll hear a quick word from me, actually, as well as from our sponsor, and then I'll get back into it. Hi, dear listener. This is Nyla, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been hosting with the team since 2020, and not only has this taught me a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but I've also learned a lot about my inability to articulate words and to keep a consistent distance from the microphone. I apologize for that. But overall, it's been a really rewarding experience and one that we would love to share with you. If you'd like to take a deep dive into Alzheimer's research and science communication, then I've got good news for you. We're currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the podcast. Just email us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media pages and tell us a little bit about yourself. Looking forward to working with you soon. Nearly 1 million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years. And sadly, no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back. So before the break, we looked at drugs to treat psychiatric illnesses. So let's start off the second half with a paper on whether depression itself is associated with greater risk of Alzheimer's. Paper 12 is published in Scientific Reports. The first author is Kim and the last author is Zhang from the Yonsei University College of Medicine in the Republic of Korea, and the title is Association Between Depression and the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease Using the Korean National Health Insurance Service Elderly Cohort. For this study, the authors accessed the database that I just mentioned between 2002 and 2013, accounting for 10% of the South Korean population aged 60 years and older. 
This means that over 518,000 patients were followed up, and the risk of dementia in the sample was analyzed using Cox proportional hazards models. The authors report that patients who had a history of depression were indeed at higher risk of AD than those without a history of depression, and that the risk was particularly high for people in the severe depression group. So, while keeping the potential effects of medication use in mind, these results indicate that it is important to treat depression, and of course, not just because of the increased risk of AD later in life. Let's move on to a different topic for paper 13, namely movement. We're looking at what might underlie the association between reduced motor function and AD in the study by first author Tian and last author Ferrucci from the National Institute on Aging in Baltimore, and paper 13 is titled Association of Combined Slow Gait and Low Activity Fragmentation with Later Onset of Cognitive Impairment. It was published in JAMA Network Open. The authors wanted to know whether impaired motor function in older adults is an indicator of neurological causes that could put them at greater risk of AD. They used data from the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, including 520 participants 60 years and older who are cognitively normal at baseline. They tracked the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, that's MCI, or AD in a mean follow-up period of 7.3 years, and assessed the participants' gait speed and activity fragmentation at the onset, midpoint, and conclusion of the study. The authors report that 64 of their participants developed MCI or AD, and that slower gait was associated with increased risk in a stepwise manner, pun intended. Activity fragmentation alone was not associated with a greater AD or MCI risk, but did interact significantly with gait speed. If you're wondering what is meant by activity fragmentation, you'll need to check the paper for more details, as unfortunately I couldn't find the definition in my quick perusal of the internet, but I will hazard a guess. I believe it means taking rests between movements, because the authors go on to report that the combination of low activity fragmentation with slow gait speed was associated with a 19% increased risk of developing MCI or AD, whereas in individuals with higher activity fragmentation, gait speed did not affect the risk. They conclude by saying that encouraging frequent rests in older adults with slow gait speed could be a good behavioral strategy to lower the likelihood of MCI and AD in this vulnerable population. That brings us to our next section, which is three papers on metabolic comorbidities, that is, conditions relating to heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. Cardiovascular health is intimately linked with dementia risk, so much so that we have an episode dedicated to the cerebrovascular mechanisms related to AD pathology. Paper 14 will introduce us to the topic with a look at metabolic syndrome, which is a cluster of conditions that increase the risk of cardiovascular diseases, and it includes things like high blood sugar, increased blood pressure, and abnormal cholesterol levels. So paper 14 is published by first author Yu and last author Ok from Kankuk University in Seoul, Korea. It was published in the Metabolic Syndromes and Related Disorders journal, and the title is Effect of Metabolic Syndrome on the Incidence of Dementia Based on National Insurance Data in Korea. The study included national health claims and health examination data from over 3 million subjects who were aged 50 to 69 years and were living in Korea. 
The authors used a Cox proportional hazard regression to analyze the risk of dementia according to the subject's metabolic syndrome status, which was categorized as either non-metabolic syndrome, pre-metabolic syndrome, and full metabolic syndrome. Based on their analysis, the pre-metabolic syndrome group had a 1.2-fold higher risk of AD than did the non-metabolic syndrome group, and the risk was 1.4-fold higher for those who had metabolic syndrome. There was also increased risk for vascular dementia, but you can check the paper for those details. This study adds to the weight of the evidence that the cluster of conditions defined as metabolic syndrome do increase the risk of developing Alzheimer's. So let's parse out some of the specific factors clumped into metabolic syndrome and their health consequences. We'll stay in Korea for paper 15, specifically at Yonsei University, with two first authors, both named Lee and last author Park. It was published in Hypertension, and the title of paper 15 is Blood Pressure Levels and Risks of Dementia, a nationwide study of 4.5 million people. Using the Korean National Health Insurance Service Health Screening Database, the authors assessed the relationship between dementia and blood pressure in over 4.5 million adults aged 60 years and older. Systolic and diastolic blood pressure was recorded at baseline and compared to reference groups that had systolic pressure of 130 to just under 140 millimeters mercury and diastolic between 80 to uh, 90 millimeters mercury. Both the risk of overall and probable AD dementia were significantly higher in the group that had systolic blood pressure that was greater or equal to 160, but also in the low blood pressure group. These U-shaped associations remained even after accounting for the use of antihypertensive medication and for comorbidities. The same patterns were seen for diastolic blood pressure, and the authors also report on vascular dementia risk, which you can check out in the paper. Paper 16 rounds off this section with a focus on glucose dismetabolism and how this relates to diabetes mellitus and dementia risk. This paper is a big collaboration coming out of Japan with first author Noguchi Shinohara and last author Yamada and the Japan Prospective Studies Collaboration for Aging and Dementia Study Group. And the title of paper 16 is Diabetes Mellitus, Elevated Hemoglobin A1c, and Glycated Albumin are Associated with the Presence of All-Cause Dementia and Alzheimer's Disease, the JPSC-AD study. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. This study followed over 10,200 community-dwelling participants to measure the associations between diabetes mellitus, the levels of glycemic measures, and insulin resistance and secretion measures. So all of those associations with dementia, specifically Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. The authors found that participants who had diabetes had greater risk of AD than those who didn't, which aligns with previous literature. Higher hemoglobin A1c levels, specifically the levels that indicate diabetes or prediabetes, were also associated with AD risk. The same was true for higher glycated albumin levels. You can check the paper for all the precise multivariable adjusted odds ratios. Last little snippet of information for you, diabetes and glucose dysmetabolism seem to be specifically associated with Alzheimer's dementia as there were no significant relationships with vascular dementia. Surprise, we have one final section to go through. I know I said four, but I didn't scroll down far enough in my script. So we have three papers that I've listed as other comorbidities. 
If you have listened to our mechanism and treatment episodes, you may have heard us talk about neuroinflammation as a contributing factor to AD pathology. Maybe you've even heard Sarah and Courtney excitedly rant about glia at some point. Anyway, there is a lot of research as to whether diseases that challenge the immune system and cause an inflammatory response may thus increase the risk of Alzheimer's, which happens to be the topic of paper 17. It was published in BMC Rheumatology by first author Booth and last author Piet from the University of Michigan and the Department of Veteran Affairs Center for Clinical Management Research. The title of paper 17 is No Increased Risk of Alzheimer's Disease Among People with Immune-Mediated Inflammatory Diseases, Findings from a Longitudinal Cohort Study of U.S. Older Adults. Immune-mediated inflammatory diseases cause a systemic inflammation that affects the joints and bodily organs. As previous findings of the potential link to AD have been inconsistent, the authors examined the risk between AD and specific immune-mediated inflammatory diseases in over 2,800 U.S. adults aged 50 and older. The diseases the authors looked at included rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and related conditions. The risk of developing AD was assessed over a six-year span using Cox proportional hazards models, which were additionally adjusted for age, gender, education, race, and the genetic risk factor ApoEE4. 6% of the study sample, that is 171 individuals, were classified as having inflammatory diseases. As we already heard in the title, there was no significant difference in the AD risk for participants with these inflammatory diseases compared to those without. Instead, they found that older age ApoEE4 status and having less than high school education were statistically significant predictors of AD, all of which are fairly established in Alzheimer's research. I'm curious, well, how this relates to, for example, Parkinson's risk. I know that Crohn's disease, at least, has been associated with Parkinson's, and I believe a couple of these other ones that I listed as well. So, yeah, I'm curious um, for a side-by-side comparison, which I think I've reported on in previous episodes, but I've reported on a lot of things in previous episodes. It's hard to keep track sometimes. On to paper 18. First author Marouli and last author De Lucas look at the association between dementia risk and hypothyroidism. This is when the thyroid does not produce enough hormones. So paper 18 was published in Thyroid. It's coming from Queen Mary University of London, and the title is Thyroid Function and the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease, a Mendelian Randomization Study. Mendelian randomization is a term that comes up often in my episodes. It's a type of analysis in which genetic variation is used to draw a causal link to modifiable or environmental risk factors of disease. In this case, the authors are testing the variation within the range of thyroid function and hypothyroidism and the association with AD risk. Data was obtained from nearly 120,000 individuals from the Thyroidomics Consortium and another 72,000 from the latest AD genome-wide association study. The authors found a causal association between increased genetically predicted levels of TSH within normal ranges and decreased Alzheimer's risk. So you know, TSH is a hormone produced in the pituitary that stimulates the thyroid. 
This was especially true in individuals younger than 50 years old. Their other measure, levels of free thyroxine, a hormone produced by the thyroid, was not associated with AD risk, and nor was hypothyroidism. I've mentioned a couple sex differences here and there throughout the episode, but our final paper focuses specifically on this topic. You've likely heard that AD is more common in women than in men. Paper 19 has a look at the estrogen exposure throughout a woman's lifetime to take a stab at answering the question of the biological contributions. So this was published in Neurology by first author Schellbaum and last author Mosconi. It's coming from Well Cornell Medicine and the title is Association of Reproductive History with Brain MRI Biomarkers of Dementia Risk in Midlife. This study included 99 cognitively normal women and 29 men between the ages of 50 and 60. The authors obtained data on the participants' reproductive history, cognitive tests, and volumetric magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI scans. They adjusted for demographics and midlife health indicators in their analysis, in which they considered the impact of the following estrogen exposure variables on AD risk menopause status, age at menarche, age at menopause, reproductive span, hysterectomy status, number of children and pregnancies, use of menopause hormonal therapy, and hormonal contraceptives. Let's take a look at the MRI results first. Gray matter volume was lower in all menopausal groups than in male participants, particularly in brain regions that are vulnerable to AD. There were also some gray matter volume changes in the peri- and post-menopausal groups compared to the premenopausal groups. On the other hand, the following were positively associated with gray matter volume in several brain regions. Reproductive span, number of children and pregnancies, use of hormonal therapy, and hormonal contraceptives. This was independent of age, APOEE4 status, and midlife health indicators. As for cognitive tests, there was no direct association with reproductive history indicators. However, both memory and global cognition were positively associated with gray matter volume in temporal regions. Overall, it seems that more estrogen exposure was associated with larger gray matter volume in middle-aged women. That brings us to the conclusion of our episode. I hope you found it useful and accessible. If you'd like to check out more episodes, we are releasing on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we also have bibliographies for episodes that we could not cover this month. Please feel free to leave us feedback on social media or to leave us a review through, for example, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested in joining the team or learning more, please reach out to us by email. Lastly, I would like to credit everyone who has worked on A Minder, past and present. But specifically for this episode, thank you to the sorting team, which is led by Jacques, Sarah for editing my script, Chihiro and Anusha, and Ellen Kosh for editing the audio, and Anjana made the bibliography for this episode. Anusha is also behind our theme music. You can find her music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or YouTube under AK Music. And she actually just also made a little music video for Dance Your PhD. It's called Journey of a Neurotransmitter, which happens to be the music that you heard throughout this episode. And you may see me and Anusha dancing in said little video. So check that out. On that note, talk to you soon.